out of Oklahoma City. You're listening to The Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. They're talking about you, boy, but you're still the same. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a special edition of the Good Trash Genre Cast. I'm your one of your Good Trash hosts, Caleb Masters, and I'm joined by my other co-host, Dustin Sells. I'm very, very excited to be here here in uh, Wicked Love HQ. Yeah, yeah, super exciting. Uh, right here in the, the kind of the belly of the beast, uh, really awesome film that's being made uh, in, here in Oklahoma. Uh, we're sitting here with the uh, director of photography and the writer-director, uh, Connor Allen. Good morning. And... Adrian Correa. Nice to be here. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for taking time out of your Saturday to sit down and talk with us. Really excited to see you guys are picking Oklahoma to you know make such a kind of like a nice kind of high school drama. We don't really, I don't think we've gotten a lot of those around here recently as of recently. No, we really don't. I mean, there's a little connection with Oklahoma filmmaking and uh, the, the Spectacular Now, which was yeah. a uh, but written by a novelist and more. Mm-hmm. And then they went ahead and sat it um, in, I think, Augusta, Georgia? Yeah. If I recall. I think they, should, they, they filmed it in Georgia, I believe, and they retrofitted wherever they filmed it at. But that's, setting. Yeah, that's really the only yeah. connection. But guys, um, I, I guess I, the first question we'd want to ask you guys is just tell us a little bit about the film. What are we, what are we dealing with when we're, when we're, we're talking about the sure. movie Wicked yeah. Love? So Wicked Love is a, uh, it's a modern adaptation of Macbeth. Um, it's told through the point of view of Lady Macbeth. And uh, in our case, she is a uh, 17-year-old high school senior who is uh, up to some wicked, wicked things. Um, And we've sort of adapted the story to uh, feature uh, sort of very much centered around football and like a small, small town in Oklahoma. Uh, The king in our story is the head football coach. He's like a former NFL pro, and he's sort of you know the man in this in this small town and um his son is macbeth and he has a secret tryst with this girl missy um and so if you were to sort of consider the play this is a something that starts a little earlier in their relationship than you know in the play where they're already married and everything so so like macbeth begins set in uh high school in oklahoma correct that's fun that's really fun um, so, I mean, uh, now I'm just kind of curious as far as like inspirations go. I mean, there's been a lot of like Shakespeare adaptations, 10 Things You Hate About, uh, 10 Things About Me, or you've got Romeo plus Juliet. Like, what, what do you think kind of. There's a great one called O, too, that was. A, oh, yeah, yeah, the Othello, Othello one, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's very yeah, dark. Tim, and, Tim yeah, Blake Nelson. Yeah, I always yeah. like that one. Um, yeah, all of those are certainly inspirations. And, but probably the biggest one for me is, um, is, is not inspired by anything else necessarily, but just. The idea of tell, of doing a modern adaptation, but doing our own spin on it, and in in this case, um, having Lady Macbeth be our point of view instead of the the male you know protagonist, and seeing them as heroes instead of villains. I mean, I think that's our point of view that's different than usual. Okay, okay, and I I, know, I would assume then, um, since you are doing sort of a Macbeth Begins uh, thing with this, that you're uh, you're abandoning the Elizabethan language. We're not doing something like, oh, very much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now we're 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 subtly um, influenced by sort of Renaissance era uh, dialogue. You know, we're uh, doing nods to it. We have you know like high school banners in the background that say you know fair is foul and foul is fair. You know that kind of stuff, okay. um, and sort of carefully and subtly including 
references to the play, references to Shakespeare, keeping that kind of dark gothic tone. But um, that's something that's coming through more like in the camera work and in the art direction, and but not so much like in the dialogue. It's not in your face. Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned the kind of visual aesthetic and kind of the darker tone, um, since we have the the fortune of having Adrian, who's the director of photography here. Hi. Um, so just kind of talking a little bit about the visual style and aesthetic you guys are going for when shooting the film, like, how did you kind of settle on a, a look? Well, um, when Connor and I started to have conversations, we were talking about uh, kind of like the nature of, 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 of modern filmmaking. And, you know, there was a big, there's been a big uh, kind of embrace of... Uh, natural light aesthetic and uh that is decidedly not me mm. so um when uh we started talking about it it was about something where like you know like the the nature of the imagery in shakespeare is is pretty extreme especially in this play i mean you can see it with other cinematic ad- adaptations like polanski's uh, macbeth or kurosawa's throne of blood uh, even something like scotland pa um you know which i thought was a really interesting adaptation of macbeth we wanted to do something where the style of the film wasn't something where it was just a uh, a capturing of the play, but something where the photography and style uh, were were the, the the photography drove the style of the film in the sense that we wouldn't try to represent the universe in a in a normal way. We would kind of embrace uh, uh, kind of a really kind of contrasty and colorful take with a lot of slow motion nods to people like Wong Kar Wai and uh and it was it was a uh, it, it was something where as we we tackled scenes and blocking and whatnot we could we had specific ideas in terms of how to frame how to use camera movement and whatnot there's a there's a every scene basically has a good dose of camera movement so a lot of camera movement a lot of really kind of felt photography this isn't a movie that has kind of an aesthetic that you would just see every day with your eyes it's something where we wanted to make a movie, mm. you know, and making a movie means, you know, like embracing a certain kind of lighting aesthetic that to me feels like something that isn't what your eye normally captures. So and we, um, we, we talked early on about sort of our, the tone of the movie and sort of the point of view of the movie being, we're seeing this story is happening. We're, we're seeing this through the eyes of our two main characters who are just sort of like hopelessly lost in love with each other. And, um, so we're seeing everything really tightly from how they're experiencing the world, which is not necessarily, you know, normal reality. Okay, yeah. Well, that was going to be my question is like the intimacy of the film, how you go about doing that. Because, uh, for instance, like Brana's Hamlet, you know, has um, this massively moving camera, but it's got great distance. And you mentioned Kurosawa and Thro- Throne of Blood, and he uses, you know, these telephoto lenses even when he's doing very, very small scenes. So are you guys keeping the camera pretty close, the actors, to give that sense of intimacy and then moving it that way? Well, we're shooting two cameras. So, and by necessity, that almost always kind of forces your coverage to be. Uh, to choose kind of like a more kind of a distinct, different, distinctly different angles because mm-hmm. we have to move so fast. We have so many pages and the amount of days that we have to shoot that we have to cover. And the for Jacob, our, our, our B camera operator, second unit guy, um, it was just about trying to find the best possible shots that communicate things. Now, sometimes we want longer lenses than we would particularly want to, but when there were specific moments... Um, where we wanted the camera and the and thus the audience to be closer to actors, we would just jump in with 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 lenses and choices that for specific beats we really wanted to uh, 
establish that kind of camera close to actor aesthetic. I mean, I tend to favor wider lenses for close-ups anyway, mm-hmm. like a 35 millimeter for um, for a close-up where you can have a camera basically from about chest up on somebody. But there's a different, distinctly different feeling close-up from that lens than there is for a 75 millimeter close-up. It just, you know, there's, there's a difference between, I think Barry Sonneville talked about it when he was shooting uh, Raising Arizona and then moving on to Miller's Crossing was that Raising Arizona has wide-angle lenses close to characters for slightly comic effect. And then when they went to do Miller's Crossing, the thing they talked about was making a more, with the Coens, was to make a more handsome, quote-unquote, movie. And longer lenses just tend to end up doing that. They flatten the image more. They're a little bit more painterly to faces. And that certainly was our aesthetic for a few of the more romantic moments. And then for others where we wanted a more particular effect in terms of maybe something unsettling, or something that was a little bit more off, we would use wider, wider lenses closer to actors. So we kind of embraced both both elements of that kind of lensing uh, kind of philosophy and also fixed axis camera movement specifically, you know, uh, a lot of dolly and slider moves and t- tripod stuff combined with handheld as well. So we've kind of gone all over the place, and I think it is definitely a collage of styles, mm-hmm. but I, I, I don't think they're incompatible. So it's been... It's been a really interesting experience for me, cinematographically. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, (laughs) we've had we've had really good. uh, We've shared some stuff with studio, and and the response has been um, more than we could have hoped so far. Oh, that's excellent! Yeah, very, yeah, 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 very cool. And uh, I tell you what, it's it's great that you're here, Adrian. Uh, We 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 get to talk to directors a lot and uh, screenwriters a lot. We very rarely get to talk to uh, directors of photography and talk about just again the framing of the image and the creation of the composition. So that's. I, that nerdiness is well welcome on this particular website. Have to be here. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, now you guys are you guys are shooting. You guys are not from Oklahoma, right? So how? Why are you here? <laughs> is the question. Um, I mean, did you when you, you said the script, the setting was I'm, Oklahoma? Did I'm you? I'm from Dallas. Oh, okay. Um, and the and the script is like I said, it's sort of you know, forgetting about Oklahoma for a second. It's it's because um, it's the script does take place. I mean, we're we're shooting this Oklahoma for Oklahoma, but. Uh, like I talked about, when we're, we're sort of stepping out of the world of realism, this is this is in Scottswood, Oklahoma, uh, and it's not like that real of a place. You know, it's sort of sort of a mystical feel to this town. It's almost too perfectly a indistinct town from nowhere. But what we wanted to Springfield. get is, yeah. Huh? yeah, Springfield, yeah, <laughs> yeah Springfield, exactly. it's, it's, it's yeah, exactly. Springfield, Springfield, America, right? It's yeah, like perfectly that. This like small town where everyone knows everybody. And they all look up to this one guy, and everyone goes to the sort of Friday Night Lights um, game on the weekend, and that's the battlefield, you know. And um, but then there's these two kids, um, Missy and Mac, who don't really belong here. They, you know, everyone else talks with accents, and they don't. Mm. Uh, everyone else loves football, they don't, and it's like a way to show that they're outliers and then distance them from everybody else and ultimately like focus the audience's attention and sympathies on them and allow them to get away with doing things that normally would make us think they're villains, but in our case, we'll hopefully love them. Yeah, like, so what has the experience actually filming you know, in Oklahoma been like so far? It's been great, um, and it's been beautiful, too. Uh, one thing that's c- cool naturally about Oklahoma, whether it's sort of how the place looks or the people that we've worked with is that is that they are the experience of like small town friday lights that's real 
to here. So even as early as doing location scouting, um, we would go and, you know, I don't know, talk to, talk to schools, talk to the football coaches of the stadiums we were trying to shoot at, and they would be super excited to get involved. And um, the only way this movie gets made well is by people contributing beyond, uh, you know, beyond the norm, beyond what we can can pay for. And, like, for example, um, we did a big, uh, some football scenes for the opening of the movie, and we had uh, 14 or 15 um, high school age kids come out and uh, and be extras, and they you know stayed longer than than was asked, and you know were out in football pads for ten or twelve hours, and um, and uh, what else? We had um, a bunch of you know we had a, a team's uh, jerseys, pads, cleats, pants, you know all um, uh, shared with us at no cost. And um, last night we were doing a. Uh, Sadie Hawkins dance scene, which was uh, Renaissance themed, and we had, I think, fifteen or sixteen people from kind of Renaissance um, recreation groups uh, volunteer their time last night and bring their costumery to our party and like fill that out. And it was hot. And it was, a, and it was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was a hundred degrees wearing like. And Renaissance clothes are not comfortable. Jackets yeah. And stuff. yeah, I had a T-shirt <laughs> yeah. on. I was like, "This is unbearable." <laughs> <laughs> but but you know you, you get like that's that's why it's special. And I you know as far as Oklahoma is concerned, like the um, people have kind of gone above and beyond to like be a part of it and enjoy being a part of it more than what's asked. And that's why this movie will end up being special. I, I hear that a lot. I'm, I'm glad to hear that um, confirmation. I hear stories that when you're shooting in L.A., for instance, you know, everyone's sort of used to film industry and those kind of things. And so if you're People shooting... People will, like, see, see a shoot as they drive by and they'll, like, honk a uh, bunch, you know, just uh, to yeah. be like, oh, I'm here and I'm messing right. up what you're doing. Or if you're shooting in a house and the neighbor will automatically fire up the lawnmower so right. you'll have to pay <laughs> them off, you know. But people here are overwhelmingly like, do we need to get out of your way? Is that, is that sort of the, uh, the the sense you get from like non-participants, but they're just, this is a movie going on and are, 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 is, there, is there a lot of assistance just from the people community in general? Super um, helpful. And Incredibly welcoming. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's fun. The only th- experience I had in Oklahoma, besides like football, in terms of like college football and college athletics and stuff, was my father-in-law had been stationed here in the Navy in uh, the 50, 40s and 50s, and he said that Oklahoma people were the nicest people I ever met. So when I came here, I was like, you know, it's a lot to live up to. He's a, he's, he's, my father-in-law was it's an awesome guy. So I was like, okay, here we go. But you don't really, as a as a technician, as a cinematographer when you don't know your keys and you don't know your crew, that's a really uncomfortable place to to be in, especially when you're doing a film on with a truncated schedule and like trying to make a film as best you can with with people you don't know. I mean, that's a that's a really difficult proposition. And and you know, and and an unsettling one because without your your keys, um key key crew members are like heads of specific departments. Without your keys, you know, a lot of times you're kind of flying blind because you delegate to them, and then you hope whatever you say to them um, gets done in a way that that is timely and pleasing, and you know, and looks good. So, you know, when I met Matt Bowski, who was the who was the gaffer on the project, and Kyle Keegan, who is the key grip, and Phil Bird, who is my first assistant on, on a camera, and like those guys are fantastic. 
you know, not just them, but the entire camera department, the entire GE team. Uh, I've been, I've shot all over the world, Israel and Africa, and you know, Bulgaria and Europe and South America. These keys and their surrounding crew are as talented as anybody in the world. They're really that good. And the other piece is also them bringing something creative on their own. Too, yeah, their choices. We, yeah, exactly. Because like yeah. even so, executing what you're asking, and then also bringing their own ideas or thoughts or you know that's that's what elevates and stuff, and it's yeah. incredible. that's what elevates material is not just the ability to have a skill set which these guys and women clearly do but they need to have the taste to be able to make those choices and then create something that is an aesthetic like elevation of what your original intention yeah. was so if it can you can tell someone something and then you get more than what you're initially asking that's when filmmaking Jumps from it from, certainly seemed to me yeah. like after a day or two of you working with um, your team, they were basically able to assess the kind of like stylistic goals that you had in mind, yeah, and then anticipate a lot of what you were going to plan for as we go forward, as we've been going forward. Well, it's funny is that I always thought of uh, uh, um, that uh, movie Gosford Park, Robert Altman's Gosford Park. Gosford mm-hmm. Park. There was that wonderful speech with Helen Mirren at the end of it where she talks about, I'm a good servant, I can anticipate. And that is a huge deal when it comes to film technicians and just film crew, is anticipatory skills. And that comes from a gaffer knowing what kind of tools you want to use in terms of units, or a key grip knowing what kind of cuts and shaping of light you're going to want. It, that goes down to PAs knowing to have water bottles on, bottles on them at all times, because it's 100 degrees and you've got to make sure your crew stays hydrated. It's a fascinating thing to me when people... Uh, I had a friend of mine who wanted to come work in film, and he said, but I just don't want to be a set monkey. And the funny thing is that set monkeys, or PAs, as some people call, sometimes call them, are, are incredibly important to the mechanics of a production. And they're, they're incredibly important and just as important as technicians in terms of keeping things running smoothly and, and efficiently. So, I mean, that's the one thing I've been really, People really impressed with. People call it a, mach- a machine, and it really is. It's, it's creative and everything, but there is, like, a machinery to it. And if, if one piece isn't working, if someone doesn't... It's like, you can't really lose anybody on a film set. If someone doesn't show up, if someone is sick, they come, mm. and they work. Yeah. Because it's you kind of need every single person. Yeah, one faulty gear, <laughs> really the watch, the the watch won't run. Yeah, like don't don't bring coffee one day and see how much see how many shots we get off. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, like and I, I do mean that. You know, I love coffee, but <laughs> seriously, yeah. yeah, don't bring water one day. See what see how much you get done. No, yeah, nothing. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. I, I mean, I would say to anybody who's interested in production that you should PA. You should if you're have. You have aspirations of being a director of photography or a director or anything, producer, you have to PA. I did it for three years. It's invaluable teaching ground. <laughs> if you're working in the film industry and you meet an asshole, chances are that person didn't PA. Uh. <laughs> Everything about what makes me the director of photography that I am started when I was a PA. Everything. It really is the foundation for everything for me. Because... PAs who understand set etiquette and the way to deal with people, the way to be responsible, and the way to have integrity in terms of the way you carry yourself on set and deal with other people, that's, that's everything. Because you, you spend more time with these people than you do with your families. 
So, I mean, it's like you have to be able to be a nice person. You have to be able to be considerate, empathetic of your fellow crew members. And then from that, you come and build your skill set. You come and you work your trade and you develop your craft. But the foundation of that is the interpersonal relationships and the way you deal with people. Yeah, I mean, you can have the best creative creative mindset on the crew, but if you can't get that, you know, if you, can't, if you can't delegate that, if you can't share that in a discernible way, if you can't be respectful in asking for it, it won't translate. Because too many people, no one's, no one's doing it on their own. No yeah, pe- people is. skills is a must. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Critical. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks for that. I, I'm just curious, um, maybe a little narrative of from the blank screen to putting together the team. Uh, since we're talking about teams right now, I don't know if you guys have collaborated before in the past. How did you guys hook up? First. And, and, and so how did how did that go about from the moment when you're looking at the screen, Connor, and going, okay, I'm going to write Wicked Love uh, to putting together your team and getting here uh, to begin filming? Um, well, let's see. I, I had uh, written a, a one-page concept um, probably about two years ago. And um, I did a, did a movie called Abducted with... Marvest Entertainment, which is the studio, independent studio that's financing this film. And um, they, uh, after I directed that movie, they had read that concept and decided to greenlight the script. Um, once we had a second draft, I think they um, they had started having discussions with Stacia Crawford, who's our producer on this film. Yay. And um, they brought her on to produce Wicked Love. And she had worked with Adrian on... A project called After the Sun Fell in Buffalo, New York in the winter of 2015. Oh, they buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they had, yeah, from the cold to the heat. It was extraordinarily mild, actually. It was nice. And, uh, yeah, so I guess you guys must have had a lovely experience. You're very tight. Yeah, and, she's great. She's wonderful. We lady. met, I live in New York City, and, and Adrian lives in Connecticut, and we um, met for coffee. And I guess you'd already read the script at that point. And yeah had some interest and we had a really we had an amazing discussion about it and it was you know, a lot, a of, lot of the stuff that we talked about here at the top of this this podcast um and we we clicked really well and i i had seen his reel and it was amazing and uh Aww. we dug we dug into it but you really you do when you meet someone for the first time and it's especially as a writer and a director it's like it's your your soul and your passion it's, you know people say it's your baby but it's like more than that in a way because it's like so personal to you and you have a you know your vision and when you hire somebody and you become partners with them they um you're giving away that in your head you have this perfect vision of what you want and i say perfect in that it's your vision no one else is ever going to see it um and you know as 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 people come on to the project a cinematographer producer actors they they take that over from you and i mean that in sort of you know in a negative way it's like okay it's you it's going to deteriorate from what's up in your head but in a positive way they hopefully are people like adrian uh and, and certainly our cast on this movie that are going to take those um positions and they're going to do more with it than what you first anticipated and 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 hopefully you know it all meshes well together yeah that's that's actually a pretty good assessment of it. I think, I mean, for me, from the page to the screen kind of thing, is that the wonderful thing about Wicked Love Script is that it has perspective. And a lot of times with young filmmakers, I find that not having a true perspective, not just on the page, but how you're going to frame it as a director, ends up 
really crippling any development that you could have in terms of pre-production into production of what a, what a film can be. And that was one of the first things I talked to Connor about when we met because the script has so much visual potential on the page. You just, I mean, it's just written that way. So you just see it. There's things unavoidably where it just conjures imagery, which is a nice thing because that's not always the case with every script. But then when talking with Connor in our first meeting, the danger with shorter schedules and with lower budgets is that sometimes you kind of engage, and multiple, and shooting two cameras at once, is that you end up engaging with what Gordon Willis used to call dump truck filmmaking, where you just shoot tons of coverage all over the place, grabbing every single thing, and then there's no focus. There's no perspective. And fix, so it, fix it in post, right? right. <laughs> not even a, like not, but like not even a fix it in post, but like a find it in post. And I find mm. that like, something you have to be very careful about. Very careful, because I think directing for me, as from a cinematographer's perspective, is that somebody is making choices. And the thing is about having perspective. Have a director with perspective that is so refreshing to me is that a director who knows exactly what kind of film they're making can make real choices that have definitive effects on the way a film is styled and shot. And then you know the moments that are going to play. And then you can make those moments great as opposed to just saying, let's shoot everything and throw it in a blender and post and hopefully we can find a movie. I find that extremely... Not dangerous is a, a pretentious word in terms of the concept of making a movie, but it, for in terms of delivering something under your artistic vision, I think it's it is dangerous. It's trap to fall into, though. Very uh, much. Because you get out and you just, you know, the more options you have, the better, right? But, but especially if you're, you know, turning something around in a short period of time, which you inevitably are. No matter how big your budget is, it'll be tight for what you're doing. That is a fact. I've done... Agreed. I've done... This you know I've done half a million dollar movies and I've done multi million dollar movies and no matter what no matter how many days you have it won't be enough because <laughs> right. your your scope will always be bigger yeah and uh, yeah you can fall into a, a quick trap of just okay let's just let's just you know shoot a bunch and then it'll be there but that's not really true I mean you're honestly better off with with one take that's perfect than a hundred takes that capture different beats and different moments if they're not really that important yeah and thankfully on this film so far you know that's the great thing about having trust with a director is that if you don't have trust with a director and they keep shooting stuff like you're not sure whether or not anything you're getting is actually the finish line you know but connor knows exactly what he wants and you can see it from day one so it was like okay he knows what he wants and that's a great thing because then you as you don't have to worry about it because then you know the film is being shepherded in a way where that artistic vision is being protected. And I've got 50,000 people trying to pull me in different directions. Connor has exactly the same. So as long as I have the North Star, which is Connor, you know, I can make those choices and, and feel like I'm heading in the right direction and that the choices being made are going to be ones that are going to be used on screen. Like we're not wasting camera movements and not wasting particular setups that don't mean anything in terms of the edit. Yeah. So, so I'm just kind of curious. You've kind of alluded to the tighter production schedule. Like, what is that? Uh, was uh, kind of what is the length of that been so far, and how we long? Have, we we're doing a it's a 16 day shoot, 15 days of principal, and then we have sort of a 16th uh, day with one camera and doing some some smaller scenes and pickups and stuff. Then, yeah. but that's you know that's a tight turnaround. I mean, that's a tight turnaround. Yeah, for for, mm-hmm. a, for a for an indie feature, you know that that's. 
that's a lot of work right. in a short period of time. Right. Well, you, yeah. you know, it only gives you so much time to make those takes, right? You talk about not sure. having, yeah, you're like, all right, I've you got really, <laughs> and I've, I've um, been on good productions and, and difficult productions, yeah. and uh, you really do not have time to mess around. I mean, you really no. want, uh, what we were just talking about, about wasting stuff, you know, you can do very traditional coverage. You can do a big old wide master, and then you can come in and do you know, medium wide, and then you can go and do some two shots, and then you can do do some singles, and then maybe you have some specials or whatever. Uh, you just don't have time for that. Or if you or if you do do that, you'll end up running out of time on every scene. You'll get your beautiful wide master, and then you'll go a little tighter, and then you'll, then you'll be out of time. And then you might, and then you and might you not even have special stuff. Yeah, and then you might not even have enough time for that close that third close up take that you really wanted or the right. actor wanted. And, and and the reality is in the edit, you might not want to use the wide at all. And you and try to, depending on the scene, if if um, if you know what you're doing, if you have a good DOP, you might sometimes you skip that stuff. And I think we've been pretty smart and efficient in knowing what we want to get out of these these scenes and getting right to it. Um, and that that makes a big difference. And also having a cast that. Um, that is, you know, without question, talented, understands what what they're trying to do, and understands where they are in the story at that point in their arcs and things, and uh, that that's prepared. That that's the other part of this, the the, the in camera part that makes this work because you got to have people that are that are ready to play and ready to to put it out there, you know. Take one, take two, um, because there's not you know there's not time to, to bust a bunch and to start get comfortable. You know you need to come and be ready to act. Yeah, you're yeah. not rehearsing on set. Yeah, right. No, it's the nature of, of, of production now. Like you said, like no matter what you have, you're gonna want more. Like you want it. We wanted 20 days. We have 15. I mean, Lawrence Arabia shot for 319 days. I'm probably sure that David Lean wanted 325. (laughs) That movie went more over budget than any movie up to that point, right? Yeah. And and that's that's how that's just how it goes because the scope, as you you know, if someone greenlights a half million dollar movie, they want a million dollars worth of scope. If someone greenlights a five million dollar movie, they want fifteen million dollars worth of scope. Yeah, because that's what they need to sell in order to make. Because it's a hard business in order to make their five million back. They need to sell it as a 15. And um, if you don't deliver that, then... You have to. You have to deliver then, more. Then the movie's not going to work. That's, that's one the, I guess it's one of the things you like... I mean, obviously you want the film to be good, but if like... I remember I did a film called Night Owls, and Mark Irwin, who was the uh, cinematographer for the Farley Brothers, had seen it. it. was like, oh, what was the budget? Like, talking to my director, and it was like... The budget like two, three million, and our budget was one hundred and forty thousand. So I was like, "Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's the, it's literally the best compliment You're that like, I think yeah. you could get is yeah. that, that it looks like a big, big movie." But it's... yeah, but then you don't want to hear, "Oh, but it looked beautiful." You're like, no. "Great, it looked good." Nah. You want a good movie? Doesn't you want a good movie? Well, excellent, excellent. Okay, so my, I guess my, my sort of uh, concluding question would be this. You know, so we're, we're, we're towards the end of our shooting schedule, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, and uh, you've already got a, a production house behind you uh, and whatnot. So what are we looking at as far as uh, distribution time and, uh, you know, what can we anticipate seeing uh, Wicked Love in theaters? Yeah, I, you know, I think the, the, um, 
sky's the limit. I mean, uh, Marvista. You know, it, it's a, it's a it's a low budget indie, so I think you have to sort of go into all this with a t- you know tone of realism. But if you don't um, reach for the stars, you never make it to the moon, kind of thing. And you, every movie I've ever done is this is going to be the best movie I've ever made. And um, I think it's the nature of this film is that we uh, say have an opportunity to try to do you know some festival route and I, and it'll be a even if it's a um sort of a unique distinct voice kind of movie it is um it is marketable it's it's romantic it's interesting it appeals to a young audience and I think we'll um do well from a sales and distribution standpoint and I know that the that that Marvista they because they are they're not just sort of a an indie investor who's putting money into a movie you know they they think about sales strategy from the concept when they when they looked at the one pager they were like oh, okay we can no matter you know we can sell this and now it's just up to me and adrian and about a hundred other people to uh execute really really well and and make this easy for them to sell um but in terms of specifically they're they're independent mm-hmm. um so there isn't a you know no one's purchased no, no distributor has purchased this movie um but uh, so we'll have to wait until it's done for it to hit the market and like start getting picked up. But I am very confident that it'll it'll sell and it'll, it's going to find its audience and stuff like that. Well, that's part of why we're doing this, you know, help you get some exposure and get this movie. Found. Yeah, for all you yeah. listening out. Yeah, there. absolutely. Um, I guess uh, is is is, <laughs> is is the plan then after uh, we wrap it up and uh, get all the way past post is to do like a festival circuit kind of thing. I, I think what will happen is that uh, the American film market happens in November, so they will. So it'll be kind of two parts to it. There's the festival circuit thing, but honestly, um, it, this movie won't rely i think a lot of movies get made with the um sort of the high-minded notion that okay we'll make this movie and it's going to be so amazing it's going to get into sundance and then we'll be able to sell it and i i honestly as 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 great as that is and and that has worked out for some people that is not a long-term strategy that i would promote to any filmmaker or investor um because you just can't control that um, you need to be smarter than that, and uh, and I am, and Marvista is, and they it won't rely. This will this will find an audience with or without festival inclusion. I think it'll be honestly, it'll be more up to um, yeah, Marvista going to um, a- AFM and some of the other mm-hmm. uh, film markets, and you know, showing the movie, showing showing teasers, showing trailers, and and, and people will buy it. Okay. Yeah, very cool. Uh, just my kind of closing question would just be: You guys have been here in Oklahoma for a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, Wicked Love is going to wrap up. And say that you know, hypothetically, it's a wild success. You guys come back, or would you come back to Oklahoma to make another film? Sure. Yeah, without question. And like I said, like I, the crew here is really fantastic. The crew on Wicked Love specifically is great. I, I love working with them, and they're incredible collaborators from an artistic standpoint. Okay, cool. Well, here, okay, here, here's a fun question to, to kind of round it all out. So you guys are both into filmmaking, and you're, you're, you're heavily invested in the industry. Um, I've oftentimes found that there was a time that you were in a theater or at home, and you saw a movie, and you said, 
that's what I want to do. Uh, just very quickly, you know, what would what would be both of your picks for like th- this is this is one of the movies that I see or the movie that I watch over and over again. Like this is this is why I do what I do. What would that be? I need a minute, Adrian. You better go first. Uh, I have two indelible experiences from when I was a kid. The first is right as the Lost Ark. The second is Back to the Future. And those films, without question, were I didn't. I they were movies first and foremost. Movies first and foremost, and amazing experiences that left indelible marks on me. And it was only after that, watching them fifty or sixty or one hundred times, that <laughs> I was able to see the the craftsmanship of just how difficult and amazing the concept of, of those movies were and their execution. So it was one. It was a wonderful childhood memory, and then an amazing kind of intellectual. Uh, just breakdown of, of what it took to make those things. So, those oh two. man, mine are so much darker. I feel, <laughs> I feel you have such like happy, nice movie. <laughs> um, yeah, mine, mine are like um, you know, uh, Donnie Darko or, or Seven is probably my favorite film. Oh, there you go. It's dark. And so I'm saying one from the 80s, one you know, from the 90s yeah. here. <laughs> Seeing it, there we go. Fincher rule's been violated yet again, <laughs> but that's go. all right. But no, you guys are in good company. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about. We're talking about good trash and and looking at uh, these sort of movies that are um, that, that they're they're fun. They're, that they seek to be entertaining, and uh, that's 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 really important because you know this this business um, definitely there's a whole lot going on academically, and there's definitely academic conversations to be had about Raiders and about Back to the Future. Donnie Darko, we've done a show on also, and uh, Seven we have not because of the aforementioned Fincher rule. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yet those movies are absolutely um, they're 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 entertainment projects yeah. as well, they, and, and things can still be. And I think people sometimes get caught up in you know critical acclaim and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, things can you're allowed to. This is the entertainment business. Movies. Just because yeah. just because something is made for entertainment doesn't mean that it can't be classy it can't be elevated and i i think what we're doing here is yeah it's kind of like you know sort of inspired by shakespeare and but but it's this is this is supposed to be a good time it's supposed to be a ride well, even even movies like Seven or Donnie Darko, you, you walk ride. away, it's definitely a ride. Seven's you know, a ride. Incredibly I mean, entertaining movie. Seven's just oh, yeah. a very, I mean, very up, horribly ele- dark. <laughs> dark, dark we are laying in bed the, the, the night after, you're like, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, def- most definitely. All right, uh, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, talking to us uh, again, Connor and Adrian. Subscribe. Oh, right. Excellent. Well, fantastic. Yeah, well, uh, for our listeners out there, if you want to go ahead and check out the uh, more, if you like the, the interview we have here, you can head on over to goodtrashmedia.com where you can kind of, uh, Do it. Do where you it. can kind of listen to more of our, our podcast. We have a few other interviews uh, with uh, other local filmmakers if you guys want to check that out. Um, so that's goodtrashmedia.com or on uh, Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash goodtrashmedia or on Twitter at good underscore trash. Thank you so much for tuning in, listener. And until next time.